Praise the Lord, that was beautiful. Thank you very much for using your talents to glorify God. I just got back from a site visit out to Montana. I spent more time on the train than I did there at the project. Of course, it takes about 26, 28 hours to get out there on a train and then same time to get back. I was only there for about 20 hours. But God bless. I met some very interesting people on the train. And as I meet people, I'm always concerned about uh, if they're married, uh, you know, what's, what's been some of the essential components in their marriage that's kept it healthy, happy, and safe? What do they view that's essential and important for that to continue and to grow and be successful? I met a young man named Zach. He's 23. He'd only been married four years, had a child. And I asked him the question. And he said to me, he said, well, I would say communication, trust, and love. And he put it in that order. And then he began to explain why. And in his mind, as we talked, that equated to faithfulness, commitment, and devotion. There was another couple years ago, Penny and Roger. They understood those principles. They understood the importance of that, that when they committed those uh, marriage vows, that they were making a commitment to stay bound together and let nothing in their particular space that would interfere with that marriage and cause division. But it wasn't long before Penny began to drift from those principles and at her job, she began to spend a little more time with another young man. Her attention was caught. Her affections were thus given. And before long, they were in a deep affair. They were so infatuated with one another that they began to think about how to get rid of Penny's husband, Roger. And they began to plot and scheme. One day, Roger, on his way out of the house, in a hurry to get to work, picked up what he thought was his iPad. And he got to work, and he opened it up, and he realized it was his wife's. But what he noticed was she didn't close out her email. And he saw a name that was unfamiliar to him. And he clicked on it, and he began to read. And as he read that dialogue, his heart sank. He was broken. He took the information to the authorities and it wasn't long before Penny and her friend Stephen were arrested and sentenced to prison. Attention, affections, and affairs. That may be a story you would read about in our social media today. But however, are there comparisons in Scripture to such a story could it be that there's some comparisons in our lives today to such a story? I invite you to bow your head with me as I pray. Gracious Father, we, we have come to hear your voice. We have come to gather a revelation of your character. We have come to be drawn nearer to your heart today. But Lord, we've also come in expectation for you to Perhaps put your finger on something in our life that is not right with you. 
because you've called us to go from victory to victory, victory to conquer and to continue to conquer, to be overcomers. And so, Lord, today, I'm asking you to hide me behind the cross. I'm asking that you pour out your Spirit upon us. I'm asking, Lord, that you speak to us in a very personal and direct way. I thank you, Father, for hearing me, for you are always faithful and you always hear. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. I want to invite you to open your scriptures with me to Exodus chapter 6. You see, when God created mankind, He created him for a purpose of a relationship to demonstrate His love, to pour out His blessing upon Him. And some of the greatest displays of God's love, of course, the greatest one is the cross. But as we read through Scripture, we, we catch other stories that display God's love and compassion and power to take His people from one position to another and to give them victory and to reveal Himself in a great and wonderful way. Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to start with verse 2. Now it's interesting before we get here to chapter 6 in chapter 3 verse 19 and 20 God is talking to Moses and he's telling him that he's going to use him to go and talk to the Pharaoh and tell the Pharaoh to set my people free but he tells Moses in verse 19 of chapter 3 he says I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Now if you were told to go and and uh, go on an errand or be an ambassador and, and tell the king of another country that this and this is supposed to happen and then God would say, surely he's not going to answer you. He's not going to respond. It might be a little discouraging. But the next verse gives us assurance. It says, God says, I will stretch out my hand and I will smite Egypt with all my wonders and I will do in the midst thereof and after that he will let you go. So God is saying, to Moses and to the children of Israel, you look, don't worry about what he says. Don't worry about the circumstances that surround you. Don't look at the obstacles before you. He says, I'm going to work something out in a mighty way to build your faith in me. Chapter 6, verse 2, And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I have appeared unto Abraham, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by the name God Almighty. But by the name Jehovah was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rid you out of their bondage and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God. And verse 8, and I will bring you into the land. I will give you, I will give it to you for an inheritance. I am the Lord. Very encouraging as the children of Israel would hear these words, God has pointed out to them that there's nothing too hard for him. He says, Behold me, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? 
Sure, you look like you're in deep darkness and in bondage, but I can set you free. He's acquainted with their struggles. He keeps his promise. He's reminded them, look, I'm going to keep my promise that I made to your fathers, and I will establish you as my children. I will complete the work that I will begin, and I will give you the land. It's interesting to know that all of this is promised to them. What are they supposed to do at this time? Stand still and see the salvation of God. They are to believe what he has said, and they are to move as he moves. Verse 9 is interesting. As it says, And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses for the anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. It was too much for them to comprehend that God could set them free from this mighty nation. It was too much for them to take in that they could possibly be set free from slavery and bondage to the Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. But God would not only just proclaim what he was going to do, as we will find later as we look at some of the commandments, at one particular commandment, God just doesn't proclaim he's going to do something. God demonstrates it. And why does he do that? Because he wants to build our faith in him. He wants to strengthen that relationship. So you can read over the next several chapters that God is not only proclaiming, but God is demonstrating his ability to accomplish what he has said. And he delivers them and he brings them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with signs and wonders. And then he says to them, I have a covenant to make with you. And he gives them the law, a revelation of his character. As the scriptures would depict that law is a transcript of God's character. It also points out sin. It's a mirror for us to look into and see where we are not in harmony with his law, his character, his government. But he gives them an interesting warning right after that. I would like you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 23. He proclaims the law. He expounds on it a little bit. And then just before they declare all that the Lord has spoken, I will do, he tells them this. Verse 24, chapter 23, verse 24. He directs their minds back to that very first commandment. He says, Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. And verse 32 and 33. And thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee to sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto you. God would bring them into the land, and they were to conquer and go on to conquer. They were to overcome, and they were to be a beacon of light to all the nations around them. But the sad story would tell us that they became weary. They became satisfied and complacent. Patriarchs and prophets would tell us in page 543, after the settlement in Canaan, the tribes made no vigorous effort to complete the conquest of the land. 
satisfied with the territory already gained. Their zeal soon flagged, and the war was discontinued. In the book of Judges, chapter 5, verse 8, you would read that because they chose other gods, there was war within their gates. There was strife. There was bitterness. There was anger. There was division in their homes, within their gates, and in their nation because they chose other gods. That verse goes on to say that what it, it, it's asking a question, then after that it says, Was there a shield or a spear among 40,000 in Israel? They lost their faith in God because they set their attention and affections on the gods of the other nations. They lost their faith and, and trust in the Word of God because their heart was set somewhere else. Their commitment was elsewhere. The Bible tells us in Romans 15.4 that all things were written aforetime for our learning. That through the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, you and I can have hope. So what would be the spiritual application of this story for us today? How do we fit in this story? Well, let's go back to Exodus chapter 6. At the cross, God made a promise to you and I that He had a new covenant to establish. He had demonstrated His faithfulness, His love and commitment to you and I at the cross. It was there He was saying to you and me today that there is nothing too great for Him to accomplish if we would but trust Him. And then He would tell us that it is His will to write His law in your heart, your mind, as well as mine. It is His desire to forgive, to cleanse, to heal, to restore, to make us His children, and we to be His people. And just as it says here in chapter 6, I will establish my covenant with you. He hears the faintest heart cry of any struggle, any sin, any addiction, any problem you are having in your life. He says, I understand that bondage but I can set you free. In verse 6, he says, I'm willing to deliver you. I'm willing to rid you of your bondage. I'm willing to stretch out my hand and redeem you. I want to make you my people. I want to bring you into the promised land. I want to see your face. I want to pick a piece of fruit, your favorite fruit off the tree of life, and I want to give it to you. But he says in this covenant relationship there's some boundaries there's principles that are to govern and protect this relationship that you and I are invited to enter in and that very first one he starts out with thou shall have no other gods before me exclusivity and commitment are absolutely essential if there's going to be happiness health, and safety in a marriage. So God looks at our relationship with Him as if we're in a marriage. He would tell Israel at one time in the book of Jeremiah, He says, I'm married to you. They were chasing after the ways of the other nations. They had other gods before them. They set their attention and affection on other things. And God said, look, I'm married to you. 
I truly believe and I've come to understand that in every commandment it is not only to show us our duty to God and to man but God would have us gather a revelation of who He is because all that God would ask you and me to be He Himself has to be. He'd never ask us to be something He is not. And He would never ask us to do something that He has not proclaimed He could do and has demonstrated in His dealings with mankind. So what would it look like for God to proclaim His faithfulness? Well, we see in several verses, I'm going to read a few here to you. The Scriptures declare God's faithfulness in Lamentations. Through His mercies, we are not consumed, right? His compassion fails not. Great is His faithfulness. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, it says, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. He would go on to say, Your faithfulness endures to all generations through the Scriptures in Psalms 119.90. God continuously through the Bible proclaims His faithfulness, but He doesn't stop there. He demonstrates it. Just as with the children of Israel in Egypt, He came to seek them and save them from the bondage in which they were in. Jesus has come to seek and save you and I from sin, self, and Satan. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in the church or you came into the church. We all have to come to face with the reality that we are sinners and that we are not righteous and that we have nothing that will merit our entrance into heaven but the blood of Christ and His righteousness. God would demonstrate as he did with Egypt, in Egypt, bringing them out, that he is able to provide for their every need. Has God provided for your every need, friends? Has he shown himself faithful in caring for you? Have you experienced his compassion, his commitment, and devotion in your life? Just as he would deliver them and bring them into the land, God has brought you into the church body to bind us together as one to make us a living temple to use us as a beacon of light to the nations around us so what would it look like to have another God before him perhaps you're saying Dennis I don't bow down to images I don't worship a, a statue or a, a anything like that but what would it look like I'll read something to you from Patriarchs and Prophets, something we can kind of get a little insight from in regards to this very commandment, the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It says this, Jehovah, the eternal, self-existent, uncreated one, himself and source and sustainer of all, is alone entitled to supreme reverence and worship. Man is forbidden to give any other object the first place in his affections, or his service. She goes on to say, whatever we cherish that tends to lessen our love for God or to interfere with the service due him, of that do we make of God. 
So what would that look like? Perhaps if our actions or our motives would lack consideration for others and our chief concern is self, our profit and our pleasure, perhaps self is a God to us. What about money? Can money be a God to you or I? I remember when I was a contractor and I worked for myself, I never thought that money was a God to me. I was faithful in my tithing. I was faithful in my offering. I was faithfully coming to church. And I was faithful in doing Bible studies. But God convicted me that money was a God to me because I was faithful to commitment when it was convenient. You see, all week long, I was faithful to working hard and, and making as much as I could, but I would not come to midweek prayer. I would not be involved in a small group. And I made sure my Bible was study was on Friday night because that was preparation day. So money became a God to me. I was committed only when it was convenient. Do you find that perhaps in your life today, friends? What about sports? I used to be very much in sports before I became a Christian and we realized that there was other things more important. But today, do we, do we know more about those that are in the game? Who's won the most games? Who plays the best game? Can we talk about that without even taking a breath? Do we know more about that than we know about God? Do we talk more about that than we lift up Christ our Savior? Then it's possible that sports have become a God to us. What about appetite? Ooh, I'm stepping on some toes here. Look, I love food. There's something else I was convicted on years ago. I love to eat. And I, you know, I'd only eat two meals a day. That's good, right? But I make sure that first meal lasted about two hours. And then the second meal, I'd, I'd spend another couple hours eating. I love to eat. But you know, friends, God would have us understand the relationship between the digestive system and the mind and how overeating beclouds the mind, how not eating properly can cause us to wane in our discernment. So perhaps appetite with some, because it's not controlled, has become a god to them. What about the media? What about gaming? Does the media have our attention and our affections more than that of God? Are we so engrossed in what's happening in the world that we forget about the service that is due to Him? Has that become a God to us? As it says there, whatever takes first place in our affections or our service that is due to Him, whatever we cherish that lessens our love for God or interferes with our commitment and devotion to sharing the gospel to a lost world, of that 
we make a God. Now, I don't know what God's, the great Jehovah, may be revealing to you that may be in your life. What I do know is we've been called to go from victory to victory, to overcome and to continue to overcome. You know, I sat down in a classroom with a group of students and we went through each commandment and we looked at what every commandment was revealing about God's character. We looked at what it revealed and how God demonstrated it. By the time we got to the Eighth Commandment, they were fully persuaded that God was for them, that He was committed to them, that He was devoted to them. They understood God's character in a way they had never saw it before. And when the appeal was made for baptism, they all said yes. To God be the glory, because it was His Word that revealed, it was His Spirit that convict. Each commandment, I would ask them to go and pray and ask God to show you what other gods are in your life. And not one of them came back and were silent. So I would ask you, friends, and I appeal to you, pray and ask God what other gods may there be in your life. You see, He didn't just bring us into the church to be here. He brought us into the church to show and demonstrate the power of the gospel. You see, the gospel is to go all, to, the all, to the whole world, right? And we, we hear it this morning, AWR. It's going everywhere. But what the world is waiting for, they're waiting for the power of the gospel to be demonstrated in the human heart. They want to see the effects of it. They want to know that it is possible for them too to have victory in their lives over the gods in their life, over the sin in their life. And so they're waiting for a people to stand up and demonstrate that. Every one of them children, they came back and they said, yes, God showed me that this is a God to me. And they would say, yes, God showed me this friend has become a God to me. If we ask, he's going to show us because he wants to take us from victory to victory but I want to encourage you, friends, open your bulletin. Let's read this quote here. There's danger in not heeding the voice of God. There's danger when we don't spend time searching our heart to allow Him to put His finger on things in our life that have our attention and our affections. It says, Every time you refuse to listen to the message of mercy, you strengthen yourself and unbelief. Every time you fail to open the door of your heart to Christ, you become more and more unwilling to listen to the voice of Him that speaks. Now this should alarm us all. You diminish your chance of responding to the last appeal of mercy. Let it not be written of you as of ancient Israel. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. Hosea 4.17 Let not Christ weep over you as He wept over Jerusalem, saying, How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, 
and ye would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. You can read in the book of Revelation over and over again, it's talking about the overcomer. Seven times it talks about overcoming. The last time the overcomer is invited to sit on the throne with Christ. I find that absolutely amazing. We live in the antitypical day of atonement, friends. Let us not forget where we are in the history of time I want to appeal to you to be on your knees searching your heart, asking God, Lord, is there something between me and you? Is there something on the books of heaven that the blood of the Lamb has not blotted out? Is there something that hinders you from using me to be a vessel unto honor and to spread the gospel to my neighbors, my co-workers, my friends? Are or is my attention, my affections, my commitment and service somewhere else other than you. And my commitment is my commitment only based on convenience. Ask the Lord, friends. He's willing to show you. And what I find absolutely amazing is as He shows you, as He convicts you, He's ready to forgive, He's ready to heal. He's ready to restore. When conviction comes, He's right there. He has a solution. He has the power to heal. He has the power to impart so that you can have victory. I can have victory. Isn't that wonderful? Roger did not give up on Penny. While she was in prison, he would go back and he would visit with her. He would pray with her. And over time, they began to study the Bible. He went to the judge and he appealed to the judge to reduce her sentence and set her free. His friends were astonished at what he was doing. They couldn't believe it. The church body were shaking their heads in, in amazement that he would be willing to forgive, to let go, and to reconcile. But just like ancient Israel, throughout all their wanderings away from God and their backsliding, he still stretched out his hand. And it says in, as it says in Jeremiah 3, verse 13, if you will only acknowledge your sin, that you have transgressed against me, that you have rebelled against my voice, that you have chosen another way, if you'll only acknowledge that, we can start over. Friends, that's a loving God. That's a committed God. That's a Father that cares. So He offers an invitation to you and I today. In every commandment, there's an invitation I've discovered. This invitation comes from Proverbs 23, 26. He says, My son and my daughter, give me thy heart and let thy eyes observe my ways. Isn't that a beautiful invitation? Offers it to each and every one of us. But friends, I can tell you and I can assure you that He doesn't want half a heart. He will not reign on a divided heart. It's either all or it's nothing. So you and I have to make that decision today.
Are we going to give him all the heart? Is he going to reign supreme? Will our attention, our affections, our commitment and service be fully his? That's the invitation. But with every invitation that God makes to us in the Bible, there's a promise, and don't ever miss that. Because we're broken. Our promises to him are like ropes of sand, steps to Christ would tell us. So every promise he makes, every invitation he makes, he gives a promise behind it. What's the promise behind this one? You can find it in Ezekiel 26, or I mean 36, 26 through 30, or 27. He says, if we are willing, as it says in Isaiah, I love it how it says there in Isaiah 119, if you're willing and obedient, I like the fact that he says willingness first, amen? Have he just said, look, if you're obedient, I can make you willing. <laughs> no, he says, if you're willing, friends, and obedient, you'll eat of the good of the land. So if you're willing to give your heart, if it starts right there, if you're willing to put your will in his will, he says, I can work in you to will and do of my good pleasure. He says, I can give you a new heart. You see, he can take away that self-filled heart, that stony heart, that selfish heart, the one that's based on a commitment is based on convenience. He can remove that and he can give you a heart of flesh. And along with that, he says, I will put my spirit in you and empower you and cause you to walk in my ways. He can empower you, friends, that you will have no other God before him. He can empower you that you are completely focused on his will and his ways and his mission and the message. But are you willing? How many of you are willing today to say, Lord, take my heart and let it be fully consecrated to thee? Amen. I invite you to open to the closing song. We're going to sing that very song. Take my life and let it be. Page one, page 330.